Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Rick Desai, for introducing me to today's guests, Kaylee Christensen and Kelly Oriad, founders of Slumberkins. Slumberkins is a leading children's educational brand on a mission to promote early emotional learning through a combination of creatures and storytelling. We're gonna learn what they believe was missing in a child's development, how they scaled organically, and maybe the most creative way I've heard to successfully fundraise, as well as lots of other amazing parts to their journey. Without further ado, here's Kaylee and Kelly. Kaylee and Kelly, thanks so much for your time. How are you? We're good. Just, you know, busy two moms running a business, but (laughs) we're doing good. (laughs) So let's start from the very beginning. How did you meet and get to know one another? Well, we have known each other since we were 14. We met at volleyball tryouts before freshman year of high school, and we kind of became instant best friends being the tall girls in the crew. (laughs) I'm 6'2". This is Kaylee. I'm 6'2", and Kelly's 6 feet. So we kind of bonded over just being kind of tall girls, odd ones out, and have been lifelong friends ever since. Awesome. I love that. When you were thinking about your both of your professional careers, what did you think you wanted to do? And, and maybe what did you want to do with your lives uh, professionally? My mom is a psychologist. And so I always had an interest in also pursuing something in psychology. So very early on, I was interested in you know how the mind works, why people act and do the things that they do. And so I sort of always knew that I was going to be going for something in psychology or therapy and it, it ended up being in therapy. So yeah, that's always been like my dream. And I was always on that path, even going through high school. I loved my psychology classes. <laughs> yeah. And I always thought I was going to be a teacher. My bachelor's degree, I didn't know it. I went to University of Hawaii and majored in travel industry management and <laughs> wanted to do PR for hotels. <laughs> but then I realized that I I'd rather stay at hotels than work for them. So I ended up kind of digging deep and thinking like, what do I want to do with my life? Like, what did I really enjoy doing? What resonates? And I had mentored a peer student in high school that was on the autism spectrum and really found joy in that and loved it. So that's when I decided to go back um, and get my master's in teaching. And so I was a special ed teacher before we started Slumberkins. And I thought that I would retire in the world of education. That's great. So how did you both blend these loves and be maybe the insight that led you to founding Slumberkins? How did that all come about? Yeah, well, since we had been best friends since we were 14 and sort of went on these parallel tracks and actually before we even got our degrees, um, uh, we both had been playing sports because we were huge. And so (laughs) Kaylee's into basketball. I was into volleyball, the two tall girl sports. <laughs> and we ended up both with Division One college scholarships. So that's why Kaylee ended up in Hawaii. I actually ended up in Oregon. So we also both were like really into doing our sports. So after college, I actually played professionally for a while and then recruited Kaylee to come over with me. So we were always just wanting to hang out and do fun things together. That's like since we were 14, just across the the time frame. So then once we um, got our respective degrees after our stint in Europe playing <laughs> professionally, we serendipitously ended up on a maternity leave together. Um, our sons were born about two months apart. 
So again, we're just hanging out as we do and um, coming up with wild ideas. And because we had just been in the schools and there was this intense epidemic going on in the schools around behaviors and mental health and teachers feeling overwhelmed. And as a therapist in the school, parents were overwhelmed and coming to me asking me for help around things like they were getting a divorce, their kid had ADHD, they heard this thing called mindfulness, like everybody wanted to help kids and specifically around emotional wellness. And we were just both seeing that in our job. So when we were on maternity leave, we were just walking around talking about this and said, Hey, we should just create something for moms and new moms to, to try to intervene earlier so that by the time kids get to school, like we're not at this crisis point already. So that's really where the idea for Slumberkins was born. And it was really the stories that carried a therapeutic intervention or thinking in them paired with cute, cuddly creatures that we ended up teaching ourselves to sew and sewing ourselves and pairing with the stories. That's really, really cool. How are you able to do it? What were going to be some of the early signs that you thought after you had this idea of creating Slumberkins, what were some of the early signs that you thought, hey, maybe this actually could be a business, maybe quote unquote real, right? Yeah. Well, as educators turned entrepreneurs that didn't know how to start a business, like Kelly said, we taught ourselves to hand sew. We, I think our first like run was like 30 first editions of Slumberkins paired with the stories as like published poems on cardstock that then we just bound with twine. And we went and sold our first versions at local craft fairs here in the Pacific Northwest near Portland, Oregon. And each craft fair, I think we did three, like in a couple months, each craft fair that they just sold out every time. And so getting that real time feedback back with customers, which just motivated us um, enough to put them on Etsy and start an Instagram account. And at the time, this was back in like uh, early 2016. And there was this big wave of like handmade, mom-made side hustle businesses in the world of Instagram before algorithms changed. And we were able to gain a lot of organic traction and attention because the creatures were, you know, in that handmade world. We had the unique story of being two moms, like doing the side hustle and they would sell out at every release we did. And for the first three years, we bootstrapped the business. But for the first real like year and a half, like Kelly and I didn't pay ourselves from any of the revenue that came in through Slumberkins. We just kept reinvesting in like bigger purchases of fabric to then like continue to build the amount of inventory we would sell. And I think at one point, like in early 2016, it was like Easter 2016, actually. We had bought out all of the fabric stores in the Portland area, all of the plush fabric. We had like bought all of it to like turn into <laughs> cuddly creatures and we were still hand sewing these ourselves. And at one point, we're like, what do we do? The fabric is like, there's no more fabric. And I, <laughs> I blatantly remember going to Sears and purchasing their entire, like the new year sale clearance section of plush blankets. And I like packed the cart full of all of them so that we could deconstruct plush blankets to turn into more slumberkins because the demand was so high. And I think at that moment we were like, okay, this is something we need to figure out like an actual website, get off of Etsy <laughs> and we need to figure out like supply chain and like, how do we produce these on a more like coming to Sears platform. isn't going <laughs> to deconstructing blankets is not sustainable, but it was really cool because we had that much traction and needed to like keep the momentum going. 
I think that that's a really good point there that you touched on that you were obviously doing it maybe as a side hustle, but it wasn't, you didn't know if, if this was going to be something, but the demand was just there. Yeah. Right. And it was like, oh my gosh, wow, this is super overwhelming because I have so much demand now. But that's a sign then that it's something I've talked to other entrepreneurs too that have come on the show and they're like, I mean, it sounds great and all like, oh, you're having so much demand. But at the same time, it's also kind of scary too. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what that was like and maybe what was your approach to even thinking about supply chain or maybe shifting the hands of uh, you two creating these cuddly creatures to, to someone else, which I'd imagine was also maybe like, like emotional as well. Yes, it was emotional. Well, this is where being co-founders is great because we also balance each other out and like check each other on our thinking as we're going. So we don't end up going down a path inadvertently because we're having an emotional response or one of us is. (laughs) So (laughs) I would say that like we were in a little bit of disagreement, like once we got to this place of all of this traction, because some of the allure that we had gotten to get to that point was that they were handmade by us. And so there was a fear of like, what if we do fix the supply chain problem and get them made overseas? And people are like, no, didn't like you. I thought that you were just a handmade group and now you're not handmade anymore. So we kind of did both tracks at the same time, just because we had the demand. We set up our own, we call it like our little cuddly creature empire here in Portland, where we had like seamstresses and an embroidery shop and like 30 miles in between driving pieces of fabric to get made. It was like crazy expensive, but we were like, okay, we're going to keep it going and keep like filling that demand. And Kaylee was really like into <laughs> keeping them. Hold and, on. Hold on. It's not slaving. I'm just saying you have more of the emotional investment in it being handmade. Yeah. And I was like, this is not sustainable. I'm going to like start looking and trying to figure out how to do this with a manufacturer. I knew that most of our market, like on social media, loved us for the handmade aspect. And if we were going to step out of that world, it was just going to be a thing. But at the same time, our mission was not to become a manufacturer of plush toys, (laughs) especially stateside where like all plush fabrics made in China. So like, you know, go to where the supply chain starts really as a smart business decision, especially. And I think the tipping point too, for us was understanding the toy um, safety standards and the robust testing that has to happen for especially toys being given to babies and young children that then we were like, we don't have a choice. Like we have to like transition this. And there is like legit rationale as to why. Yeah. Oh, we didn't know where to start. So we just Googled. (laughs) We were Googling everything and like, didn't know anybody who had done this before. And so we ended up Googling and finding the name. And we just wrote people that were like in charge of manufacturing groups. And we found one and actually kind of struck gold with the quality of partner in person that we got in touch with who helped us really get connected to a great manufacturer. That's awesome. And also super lucky as well, right? You're able to meet that person. That's great. You touched on a number of good points there. One is like brand authenticity, which of course is so important. And how did you think about conveying that to your audience? Hey, like these are our designs, but we're just no longer the ones that are manufacturing them ourselves. That makes sense just because it's not sustainable because so many folks that want it, which is amazing. But how do you kind of convey that that authenticity in your story when you actually do scale? Because I imagine that could be kind of tricky. 
Yeah. What's funny about this is that we made that announcement and that debut on Shark Tank. (laughs) We we had the opportunity to go on Shark Tank in 2017. We had like a great like story and traction behind us. And we had been doing the diligence in 2017 of like figuring out the supply chain and working with our first manufacturer overseas. And we actually, our episode of Shark Tank aired the day our first PO arrived unpackaged still like we've always like did this in stages of scaling but I think we just had to really lean in on like hey we're a therapist and a teacher on a mission to really affect change in how families approach emotional wellness for kids the mission is delivered actually more in the storylines and the characters are the things that kids like resonate with and how the storylines like come into play but it's really not about the plush handmade aspect it is like you could read our unicorn story which is like the board book sells for $9.99 on our website and pair it with a $5 plush toy unicorn that you find at Target. You know, like we're more passionate about the content and the therapeutic aspect more so than the plush. So we really leaned into that and leaned into the mission. And I think our consumers, we lost like a few consumers that really loved the handmade aspect, but the gain of like reaching our mission and like that many more people that resonate with the therapeutic angle was so worth it as a brand. It makes a lot of sense because, and I understand it too, like losing a couple of customers over, you know, that that's not handmade, but at the same time, then you're making a lot bigger impact. Yeah. If I was a customer, I would really focus on the actual impact and beauty about that. How did you approach storytelling, content mixed in with creatures and kind of this, you know, doing all of one and synchronize and kind of together and package that to children? I think it always started with the intent and the message and the skill that we wanted to have the parent and child experience together, right? Like if we were thinking about sloth and relaxation, like what would we would start with the parent and child, like in the center, right? From the product lens of like, what experience did we want them to have? What is the outcome we want them to have? We wanted them to walk away with something that would connect them back to that. So in writing the stories, that was always really like driving the thinking there. I still get surprised when people tell us like, oh, we got it. And like, I can't believe it. My kid doesn't usually like the plush and they don't usually like this stuff. But we read this book and they're like, it's crazy. They're obsessed with it now. And they're saying the mantra to me three days later in the appropriate moments. And it, it just like touches my heart so much that like the intent and like the focus on it and trying to make it very simple, um, resonates and did and continues to work for people. But I think, you know, for me, Kaylee and I like work so well together because I get hyper-focused on that, which is like such product focused And Kaylee, being a high school and middle school teacher who was working with kids that were like totally checked out and didn't want to be at school, she has this superpower of like storytelling and engaging people who might be hard to engage. And she brought that to our brand and to the marketing and how we engaged people to understand what that product was about. And so I think the blending of both of those, the storytelling that goes, weaves through all of that, like has really been Kaylee's superpower. Well, thanks. Yeah. Who knew that engaging middle schoolers for English would translate to social media engagement. But, (laughs) but I think that all of our collections start with the skill that we want to teach. And then it's fun to match the characters. You know, when we thought about conflict resolution, our conflict resolution 
collection's mascots a hammerhead shark because that collection is all about giving the the person that might you know have big emotions or big reactions to a situation giving them like a tool of repair and coming back to the table and you know building that relationship because I think in the schools when we were working with students it was always the bully that was sent to us to help problem solve and so wanting to really empower kids in that way but it's always fun to think about okay what emotional skill do we want to teach what animal or creature matches that. So from the early days, that's always been the fun part. (laughs) I love that. And I appreciate that example as well with uh, Hammerhead Shark. That's terrific. How do you think when when co-founding a company, you think about complementary skills and, hey, this is kind of my box or where I kind of lie and and where my superpowers are and versus yours and the whole decision-making around that? Or is it much more kind of collaborative and there's a lot more kind of almost like endless, if that makes sense? I think in the early days, it was so collaborative. Like we were a part of every decision together and we still kind of are, but we've definitely had to take time to, in our educator selves, like draw a whole Venn diagram where we map out, okay, what does Kelly own? What does Kaylee own? And where do we overlap where we have to come to the table and align before kind of like bringing ideas and things to the broader team, just to make sure that we're always aligned and on the same page. It's been a journey as friends entering into a business relationship as co-CEOs because it's very much like a marriage. (laughs) Totally. And I think too, it's like, this is where the overlap of like our own personal growth along with what we're doing, you know, like we didn't expect it to be this way, but the opportunities come and there's moments where, you know, we feel insecure. We don't know what we're doing. And it's easy for, we love being co-founders because it's easy to say, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I should just step aside. And we, you know, prop each other up and help each other see where we are the strongest and give each other feedback of like, no, this is what you're good at. You can do this and like pump each other up in the areas that we know that we, we do understand and we shouldn't back away from. And then we also help each other when we're, you know, going off the rails in an ego trip thinking that we know the best thing. And it's like, Whoa, okay. I'm going to hit you with the real now. I'm going to take off my CEO hat and talk to you as your friend and be like, you're how are you doing over there? Yeah, <laughs> Something's going on. Let's talk. <laughs> I love that. How maybe has sports maybe impacted you both personally and how you maybe approach your, your business? Since also volleyball is a pretty team collaborative sport too. I, for record's sake, I was a basketball player. I was actually a terrible volleyball player. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Okay, I don't know, okay. but... But I think our like our journeys as athletes have a hundred percent informed how we approach entrepreneurship. You know, we treated our first craft fair like the NCAA tournament, where we got there early. We were like ready to go. We were so hyped and like excited. And I look back on those early days and I'm like, how did we have that much energy and drive and passion for like what we were doing? But it stayed like that along this whole journey. And I think as an athlete, you just look at every potential loss or like practice as just prepping for the next thing. And I think as new entrepreneurs, it very much feels like we're just heading into new games all the time. And it's a practice ground behind the scenes. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's played into our attitudes. Yeah. And then from a leadership perspective, I think, you know, that's just been a journey of And I think we'll continue to be on it, stepping into what does the team need from us? What are our best skill sets and how can we bring the most value? How can we support the team and slumberkins to be 
the best business that it can be. And I think that shifts and changes over time. So it was in the beginning of us being this crazy innovative idea factory and like getting into everything and being part of everything. That phase is moved on. (laughs) And now we have more people and we need to be more uh, structured and people need to understand their roles and be more clear. And that's the shift for us. You know, we like to give a million ideas for a team that's trying to get stuff done, sometimes that gets distracting. So that was a moment of reflection of like, okay, well, how do we need to lead the team now? And where do we need to put those ideas? And how do we get the structure in place? So we're always trying to self-reflect a lot and tune into what the needs of the business and the team are. That makes sense. Great. I would love to also talk about fundraising. When did you feel like you need a fundraise? What was the reason why you wanted to fundraise? And what was that experience? Yeah, it's been a journey. So, you know, you talked about leveling up from like our careers as as athletes and it very much has been kind of this leveling up within the world of fundraising and really understanding why we would want to fundraise. We ended up taking in our first like outside capital uh, right around the time we went on Shark Tank to really help us like make that first big PO overseas. And it happened to just be a friends and family loan initially, which is not the traditional way with startups. A lot of people aren't like, we were really lucky to have someone that could loan, loan us money in that capacity. And then when we went on Shark Tank though, I think it made us think a lot bigger for the brand. It made us think through how are we going to answer the questions of what's our three to five year strategic plan, <laughs> you know? And when thinking about that and the growth and the mission and how many people and children and families we wanted to reach, we quickly understood, okay, this is why you raise money so that you can grow faster. And so it was actually in 2018 after Shark Tank aired in the end of 2017 that we ended up kind of doing our diligence on really understanding fundraising. And we ended up raising a first initial round of $500,000 in the form of a safe note. And it was mostly local angel investors here in Portland. That's terrific. I remember you telling me that early on, you had a tough time finding like a lead investor. What was your strategy in order to land the lead? Oh, Well, so in that safe note, that was one where we had like gone around and like gone into meetings, tried to pitch, go through our perfect pitch deck that we thought, you know, once we made it, now it's done, which was a silly uh, thought, but going into those and not even getting through them, getting told to like, this is, you don't know what you're doing, leave. <laughs> you know, like come back, when, come you back know. when you know what you're doing. And, you know, like definitely the roller coaster of like trying to pitch and raise money, which is like such a hard thing. You know, we started getting traction with like individual angels that would do 25K, 50K checks here, maybe 100K. And so we only wanted to get to a, a half a million. And, you know, we had about $200,000 worth of people saying, oh, I'll put some in, I'll put some in. And so then we were like, well, what do we do? People want to give us money. We have people who want to do it. We were asking people like, oh, you need a lead. You need a lead. They kept saying this thing about this lead. And we're like, well, who's the lead? What's going on here? And so we couldn't, we hadn't gotten a fund to technically lead this round yet at this time. The angel investors were asking us to just what are the term sheet? They'd be like, what are the terms? Send us the term sheet. We're ready to give you the 25 to 50 K. And that's when we were like, well, we don't have a term sheet because it was under, we were under the impression that we had to have a fund give us a term sheet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when we were like, we were talking to our lawyer and she's like, well, I mean, you could just like, we could draft a term sheet. So (laughs) then you could just start accepting money from these angel investors. And we were like, yeah, let's just do that. So that's a moment that was a big moment for us where we were just like, cool, like, 
here's our terms. And it was cool. We got to set the terms and we had already accepted money from independent angel investors in on those terms when we were speaking to the first like fund. Yeah. So then the fund was, you know, we had already brought, technically started accepting money and they were like, what are the terms? And so we gave them our term sheet and they just accepted those terms, which was great um, because usually funds would say, oh, great, you haven't had any money. Well, here's a term sheet for you. So we kind of flipped the script on that one. And as we've told people, they've been like, oh, that's such a good idea. Yeah. I think it's like the ignorance is bliss in like first time entrepreneurship where you don't really know the rules. So you just make them for yourselves. And it greatly benefited us. And that first fund, it's Cascade Seed Fund out of Bend, Oregon. They're just amazing. They're amazing Amazing first partners. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I hear that a lot in terms of, um, hey, we love to come in, but you need a lead. Go find this lead. And you flip the script and you actually put power to yourselves by not having a lead and being able to draft your own term sheet from that. And then going back to your angels and the other investment partners you wanted involved and they being fine with it. So it was actually almost in a better situation that you actually didn't have a leap. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. What was a Shark Tank experience like? What was one of your biggest learnings from that experience? Oh, it was so stressful. I mean, that was our first pitch ever from the world of fundraising. I remember Kelly and I practiced our lines like backwards in and out, like trying to like remember calculations of valuations. (laughs) It was so stressful. And I think even before we went on Shark Tank, a, a friend of ours, who's now our senior VP of marketing, asked us, you're going on Shark Tank? What's your like mission and vision? And like, what's your brand platform? Like, what are you speaking to? And we both were like... Oh, I know. We're going on Shark Tank. (laughs) So there was a lot of prep behind the scenes in us understanding even how to articulate the traction. Because I think at the time we had had close to a million dollars in revenue, just organically bootstrapped, like, and didn't even know the power of the traction that we had and how to even get that across. Yeah. And when we were on there, I would say it's just like, it was a completely surreal, crazy experience. The nerves were so high and the, just like you're in another universe on these sets and you know, it's weird. We watched every episode of Shark Tank leading up to it to like try to prepare ourselves. So like actually walking down the hall and seeing the sharks and then we didn't get a deal. We didn't even get an offer. So that was also like very like, Oh my gosh. (laughs) And you know, we were upset and crying. So I, they have a psychologist like come and meet you afterwards. And I feel like I don't even remember like the last half of like what came out of my mouth in the tank because we were in there for an hour. So yeah, it's, it's it was a, surreal. There's surreal. moments that I don't remember. I remember <laughs> I locked my knees on set and when we like turned to leave, I was like hobbling like out of the tank. It was terrible. But I think, you know, my favorite part about Shark Tank is the story of the editors and producers loved us. They gave us an amazing edit and really featured the mission and like positioned us as uh, the brand that we wanted to be positioned as, as, you know, they're showing up for families. And then the next day on the way home. We were so deflated. Um, but being frugal uh, educators turned entrepreneurs, we were too cheap to buy internet on the flight home from LA to Portland. And Kelly was like, well, why don't we use this time to be productive? And we ended up writing our book about growth mindset on the plane ride home from Shark Tank. It was like this deep moment of inspiration for us. So it was the narwhal collection. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> coming out of Shark Tank. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're able to introduce new characters and new stories for children. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Since you both didn't come from a business background necessarily, was that tough for investors to kind of get over? Like, wow, these two women are doing so amazing, but they don't maybe have a women background, so I'm not going to invest. I would say yes and no, because yes in that, like, we definitely sense that. I think what we had behind us with the traction and the sales and the community, the community it kind of just all like spoke for itself. It kind of spoke for itself. And I think the people who, who saw that and saw us and truly did see us at this early stage of like knowing that we didn't likely know what we were talking about sometimes, <laughs> but that we were the type of people who were going to figure it out for early stage investors that's really what they're looking for. And if they're not looking for that, then they're just trying to fit you into a box that they know. And they're not going to be that great, from my opinion, that great of an investor anyways. Because like what kind of creativity and actual view of talent and like somebody who's building something in that early stage, are they? They're just trying to follow a formula in a space where it is all about growth and creativity and figuring it out, you know? So I think the investors that ended up really believing in us saw that in us. And I appreciate them, the people who signed on so much in those early days, because it really is a sign off on like, I believe in you. I know that whatever comes, you and Kaylee are going to figure it out. And I will write this check saying like, yeah, you don't have a CFO. You don't have your model together. You don't know exactly all of the answers to these questions, but I know you're going to figure it out. If you're in that situation and you're getting that pressure and pushback, I think people used the fact that we didn't have that to make us feel less than (laughs) or to put pressure on us to like, because they weren't interested anyways. Right. And so then we would walk away with this heavy burden on our shoulders of like, oh, we suck. Like, we don't know those things. Like, I don't know about the model or the exactly this and that, you know? And I think sometimes investors are just looking for what they're looking for. They weren't going to invest in you anyways. And they give you a reason. I think it's so easy as the founders going through fundraising to take every no personally without understanding the full context that funds have their own stuff that they're dealing with. (laughs) They need to invest their money by the end of the year and they're on timetables. And they also have different like metrics. They're looking to find in a business. Like they're looking to come in at a certain stage to get a certain return. And we didn't understand like the investor perspective. And so we took every no really personally. But I think as we've gone down the fundraising path, we understand that so much more where even if someone is so inspired by the mission and what we've been able to do, if it's not the right time for them to invest in the company, we no longer take that personally. I also think the thought around the reframe for us that there's undeniable traction behind the scenes here and that it's really like their opportunity to get in. And like the moment we flipped that script and really started interviewing investors to kind of ask like what value they brought to us, knowing that we don't know what we don't know, how are you going to help us? It really changed our fundraising trajectory. And now that we've like raised close to $7 million for the brand, we're pretty confident in looking, knowing how to look for the right partners. What was your strategy when you kind of flip the script again, right? In terms of trying to find out what the actual investment partners brought to the table. What was your strategy in kind of validating what they said and kind of making sure they, they not only talk the talk, but also walk the walk? A lot of diligence. Yeah, definitely saying, who are your portfolio companies? And will you make intros to them? And asking for one that they didn't, 
serve up um, or one where things didn't go well was a part of our diligence process of like, who are they in the good times and who are they in the bad times? Because we had early advice too on, you know, people that you take money from, it's more intense than a marriage. Like you're not getting out of it. They're going to be along for the ride. Like they're going to be part of your family. They're going to be part of, part of it. And so like, be sure about who you're bringing in. So really interviewing and doing our background on them as well and back channeling. We never just took their word for it or their portfolio companies that they introduced us to. We did back channeling on everybody of like, how do I find out as full of perspective as I can about the people that we're bringing in? Oh, that's great. What's one thing you would change about the fundraising process? Oh my goodness. It is so time consuming. I think understanding that when you're fundraising, it becomes its own full-time job and it can like, it can create this moment where you kind of take your eyes off of like operating the business to then raise money for the business. So I think like the first couple times going through it, it created two full-time jobs for each of us to manage. And then this, I'd say this last time going through it, we had gotten to the stage where we have an executive assistant now that really helped us like schedule and prep and like keep organized around it. And that was game changing for like being able to like speed up the process of it. I guess for me, just really thinking of the early stage, because once you get that first check-in, you get that first round in, it's, you get your feet under you and it's easier to figure out. But I guess when I think of the earliest money in and that process, I think the way that it's set up for businesses to get to investors, to have to pitch to them, all of these, like the ways that it's set up can be pretty exclusionary to people who have amazing ideas and who are amazing founders that are going to figure it out. And so I think there needs to be a a shift in early angel investing or early stage investing, like those first checks in, in what people think they're looking for, you know, and how they evaluate that. Because I think from my perspective, a lot of investors, like I said before, we're treating early investing like an A round and like wanting all of this stuff that is like, just fake and not real for a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are badass and are going to figure it out. And they struggle to get money and they may not make it because they need that money. So I think there's a couple of funds. One of um, the funds that invested in us very early, the Starve Up Fund. And that is like a founder to founder mentorship group that we became a part of, um, sort of like an incubator, but they don't take any equity. They only offer funding if you um, get in. And it's a Once you get into that group, it's a no questions asked. If you want funding, if you want that money, like it's there for you because you're part of this group and you're an entrepreneur. And because you got in, we know that you're going to succeed. It's no questions asked. And I think sometimes just the belief in somebody's ability makes all the difference. And so, I don't know, there's like something there around who gets through the door and who gets money that I still think is, is kind of off in the world. Like, the kind of questions we got as women, I think were sometimes, and responses were sometimes different than our male counterparts. (laughs) And I assume that that's going on for people of color and like just the typecasting of like, you know, white male entrepreneur might have an easier time. I totally agree. If you're um, a woman or a person of color, I think you do get treated differently, unfortunately. And that's horrendous and horrible. I mean, if you look also at the numbers, of course, it's really bad in terms of diversity, in terms of number of women that get funded, people of color that that get funded. It's really atrocious. And on the stage side of things too, I think that it is interesting as well when you think about, I really like your point where if you're an angel and it's pre-seed, 
don't expect that you have these metrics and these crazy, you know, you, you've accomplished so many things that's pre-seed. I mean, it's pre-seed, right? It's, um, or, you know, it's first check-in. And so, so you should be much more interested in the idea and concept and see about the mission and see about the vision where it's going and really see if you actually get it or don't get it, right? So, um, and more so on that side of things. Yeah, that's where the disconnect I think was for us is that we had the traction. We had over a million dollars revenue when we were raising. We actually had bootstrapped. By the time we took in that $500,000 safe note round, we had over 1.5 million in revenue and a robust community behind us. You and know. it still was start scratching and yeah. flying. And that's where we really felt like we had this peer group of founder to founder mentorship here in Portland of other entrepreneurs. And we consistently watched our like white male counterparts get checks written so easily while it felt like we were scratching and clawing for those 25 K checks. But I will say everyone that did invest in us completely invested in the belief that we're going to figure it out. We were going to do it. And we wouldn't want the other investors that, you know, were funding other people <laughs> at that point, but it was really deflating. And I will say that's where we leaned heavily on each other as co-founders. I think being a single co-founder trying to raise oh. money without even like a peer to peer, like mentor of different companies within that same stage would be so daunting. So I think like if you are a solo entrepreneur founder trying to raise money, connect with like other people at that same stage uh, at the same time, because you really need that yeah. perspective and support and community. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's hard. It hits your confidence. It hits you like a ton of bricks. It makes you question everything. And if you don't have a support network, you could, you know, your beautiful idea that could change the world is kicked down by, by who people who have some money in their pocket and want to tell you that it's not good enough. Like you can't let that stop you. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very lonely. What is one book that inspired each of you personally and one book inspired each of you professionally? Ooh, well, <laughs> you go first. <laughs> Personally, would be the book Untamed. I love that book. It's uh, by Glennon Doyle. It really, I think, inspired me to kind of step into my truth and really like lean on that like deep inner knowing. I think that stepping into my position as like a co-founder, co-CEO, and in of Slumberkins, like it's actually put me on this like growth uh, journey around even like communication style for myself. I was one that like in my personal life would always kind of keep like not speak up to keep the peace for those around me. And I think like stepping into the role of being a leader and having to articulate my vision and like lead a team really pushed me even in my personal life to speak my truth and speak up and not like not say the thing because I might make somebody mad. And so personally, that's been, been a book that I've really resonated with. And then professionally, I mean, I don't read enough from a professional angle, but I would say like, I do listen, the Brene Brown podcast, like is one that like affects me both in my professional life as well as my personal life. And then I personally loved Phil Knight's shoe dog, the memoir of building Nike. I, the whole time I was reading it, I was like, Oh, this is like Slumberkins is like the Nike. <laughs> Slumberkins is like for the preschool entertainment landscape is like the, the Nike of the like, you know, consumer brand, athletic consumer brand. But yeah, I guess those are my two faves so far. Okay. So I'm I was looking in my Audible account to say like, what books have I listened to lately? Just because I feel like we've been on a crash course of like real time learning that feels like an MBA program uh, without reading books because we're just like coming in all 
day to day. So I would say some books that have really fired me. Eckhart Tolle is a someone that I really love and I've taken multiple courses of his. I have you know, his book, um, Finding Your Life's Purpose is amazing. The Power of Now. Um, both of those, I think, are amazing concepts that can be infused into just living your life and leadership. I highly recommend both of those. Um, and then I think where I end up digging in more is just theory stuff like on interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel, um, as we like think about the kind of stuff that we're infusing into Slumberkins. I read Autobiography of a Yogi, which I had heard Steve Jobs had like handed out to many people and it was like his favorite book. And that book was like so mind expanding and eye opening. So I'm really often going into like psychology, uh, personal transformation, uh, depth, growth work books. And I just, I eat that stuff up. So those are my recommendations. I love it. I love it. Um, all these books sound fascinating. I will say Shoe Dog is the most brought up book on this show. <laughs> We've had like, it's so on our site, how I do it is we have like the most popular one listed first for a book. And then, and Shoe Dog is like by far and away number one. But I'm really excited to add all these other books. I don't think we've had other folks mentioned these uh, before. So really excited to add those too. I did just purchase a book that's for like the workplace, but it's called, I haven't read it yet. It's coming in the mail. Professional Troublemaker by Lovey Jones. Oh. It was just released and it's about not being afraid to say the thing that might make others uncomfortable if you know that it's right. It's kind of the same thing with Untamed of like leaning into your deep like inner wisdom, but like I think applied to the workplace. So I'm really excited to read that because I do feel like with us like not really knowing the rules of business, we are kind of professional troublemakers. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's awesome. A final question for you both is what's the best piece of advice that each of you have received? Hmm. I'll go first. I think like I'll lean into the fact that this journey of Slumberkins has been so built on relationships. And I remember there being a time, and I, this is going to be so cliche because I'm going to say Kelly's been the one to give me the best advice, but she is like my best friend and trusted, you know, therapist mindset. But we really lean on each other through the hard times. And I think there was this moment when we were doing our first, like our seed round, which was our first price round that I was having a really hard time, like signing the term sheet because I was like, is this the right decision? Are these the right partners? I don't know. And I feel sick about it because once they're in, they're in, they're part of our family. And it feels like I'm sending my baby to a boarding school, you know, like, and I was so sick to my stomach for a couple of days and like totally coming undone personally, like emotionally and my stress levels. And I really, you know, had that vulnerable conversation with Kelly over where I was at. And she was like, okay, Kaylee, but if you think about like what our big mission is, our vision for where we want to be, this is just a necessary step to get us to the next place. It's a step in our journey. And I think like leaning into the trust that I have in her from a strategic thinking mindset was one of those moments to really like step out of the emotion for a minute and look at the bigger picture and like all of the steps needed to get where you want to go. And then it was a much easier decision to say, okay, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to lean in to the vision and mission and go with it. And it was the absolute right decision. I would say the thing that comes up for us the most of this concept of always 
searching for and knowing that you don't know what you don't know (laughs) and being okay with that and being authentic about that. This environment, being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of ways in which it's glamorized and that people, you know, get pushed to be something they're not or pretend to be some sort of leader or person that isn't truly who they are. And it takes you away from that place of always striving to know what you don't know because you're trying to pretend like you do know. I think those are great, great piece of advice. And yeah, that's super helpful and really fascinating. Well, this has been so much fun. Kaylee and Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the show. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Kaylee and Kelly. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 